0: 1 Peter 5, verses 1 to 14, hear the word of the Lord. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. After almost two years back in the States, I think I have finally figured out what is the most popular religion in the United States. At first I thought it was college football in the South and the Midwest, and pro football in the, the Northeast and in the West. Uh, and then, um, I thought maybe in this time of year that it's NCAA basketball, but then I realized that those are kind of niches still. They're popular, but they don't, they don't rank up there as being the predominant religions. Although they actually, uh, they inspire a whole lot of fervor, at least when they're going, don't they? Well, we're in March Madness now, so the basketball fans are all excited about that. But actually, I think uh, there's another faith that is more common even than these sports, uh, these sports enthusiasts, um, and that is something that I have heard people say. It's an expression, and I've heard it time and time again since I've been back. And uh, I, I've heard it, interestingly, from people with Christian backgrounds, people with Jewish backgrounds, and people with Muslim backgrounds. And so it seems to be something of a common statement that is kind of a residue, uh, common faith among many people in, in our nation. And what they have told me is this. They say, I'm spiritual, but not religious. Have you heard that? Mm-hmm. I'm spiritual, but not religious. And so I think that is the basic creed of this, this faith. And as I thought about what that means, and when they say that, I often ask them, I say, well, tell me, explain to me, what do you mean by that? And what I've discerned is this, that they believe in God in some fashion or another, and they believe that they are spiritual beings. That is, they believe that they're not just random atoms colliding in the void with no purpose, no destiny, no meaning in life. So they're, 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 they're trying to affirm that there is something beyond ourselves, uh, there is a God, uh, and we are spiritual creatures. We're not meaningless molecules and atoms uh, floating around. Um, another way I've heard this expressed, and perhaps this is a, uh, a negative way of expressing it, but it often comes on the heels of the statement, I'm spiritual but not religious, and then sometimes it's added, I don't believe in organized Religion, And that's an older one, but I'm hearing that kind of tacked on to the newer statement as well. Now, I think this religious stance, because it is a religious posture, it is a religious stance, it provides a vague sort of meaning to life, um, and it doesn't require any commitment. So it's got that, I guess you could say, benefit. It, it, It sort of affirms that I am a spiritual being and that there is a God, but it requires absolutely no commitment. But it has a great practical disadvantage. Apart from uh, the theoretical disadvantage of, of, uh, of, of the truth or falsity of the statement, there's a practical disadvantage, and that is this. It provides no serious help when things go wrong. A vague sort of spirituality doesn't really provide any serious help when the diagnosis of cancer comes back or when the loved one dies, or when the divorce papers are served, or when financial ruin strikes, or when addiction takes control. It doesn't provide any serious help. And another practical disadvantage of this religious stance, unorganized religion, if you will, is that there are no humans involved either when disaster strikes. There's no one to call there's no one to call you. There's no one to text. There's no one to text you. There's no one to cry with you. There's no one to visit you. There's no one to assist you. There's no one to help you in this or unorganized, sort of vague religious sentiment. Now, in contrast to this, and by the way, I'm always saddened. I'm always saddened when people call me, as they do, and they say, um, I need financial help. And I and we as a church try to do what we can, but I, I wonder where is their community? Why are they looking up on the Internet and just finding a, a random church out there? It also makes me sad. When I get a call like I did not long ago, he left a message and says, we want to get married, and we want to know we're looking for somebody who can help us out with that. And I wonder, where's the community? Why, why are they just looking up on the Internet and trying to find somebody, or even sadder? I'll get calls from funeral homes and saying we have somebody who needs a funeral and has nobody uh that they they know to reach out to as a family. I wonder where is the community when disaster strikes and when there's a need. But in contrast to that, in contrast to this approach to faith, there is Christianity. And in Christianity, we are always we always have been organized organized into a structured caring community called the church a structured, caring community called the church. Now, in this series, and this is our last one, so what have we seen so far? Let's sum this up. In this series, we have discovered that the church is a hopeful people, a holy people, a chosen people, a free people, a long-suffering people, a loving people. Do you want those again? Yeah. Some of you are writing them down. Okay, here we go. A hopeful people, a holy people, A chosen people, a free people, a long-suffering people, a loving people, and today our last one, and it is a cared-for people, a cared-for people. In this final practical section, Peter addresses, first of all, the elders in verse 1. He says, so I exhort the elders among you. Now, the, there's almost almost no reason to bring out Greek words um, when we're speaking English, but every once in a while there is. Uh, the Greek word for elders is presbyteroi. Presbyteroi. Does that sound familiar? If you look at the front of our bulletin, it says that we are members of the Presbyterian Church in America. And that's where the word Presbyterian comes from, from the Greek word for elders. And here, look at what he says. He says, I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder, and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, then verse 2, shepherd, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, etc. So he says, elders, two things. You need to shepherd, or Pastor, that's the word that's translated shepherd or pastor. You need to pastor those among you, shepherd those among you, exercising oversight. And here's another Greek word I'm going to give you. It's a verb, but the noun form is episkopos. Does that sound familiar? Have you heard any sort of religious word that sounds like episkopos? Episcopalian. So, episkopos is the word generally translated bishop, but what we see here is that the elders were to do what? They were to pastor, and they were to bishop, or to oversee. What's the point of that? Well, the point is that originally these three offices, elder, pastor, and bishop, were the same thing. Later in church history, these got divided out. But the original church, and we see this here, and we see that in other texts, there was one office uh of, of instruction and of oversight, and it was the elder. Now we in our circles call the elder who is given responsibility for teaching. We call him the pastor, but that is still an elder. And then there is another office that's not mentioned here, which is a one of service, which is the deacon. Elders and deacons. That's biblical church structure, and that is Presbyterian church structure. So if somebody asks you, what does that mean? Presbyterian. What does that mean? It just means that we have elders that guide us and teach us and pastor us and instruct us. And we see here that that's a biblical way of organizing the church. Now look at what Peter says here. He he says really humbly, doesn't he? He says, I exhort you as a fellow elder. Peter could have pulled out what title? Apostle. And he did. He did at the beginning. But here he says, I'm a fellow elder. And he says, I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, people look at that, witness of the sufferings of Christ, and and try to figure out what that means, because is he referring to the fact that he saw Christ suffer? Well, he did, but uh, throughout Christ's life, but when Christ was actually suffering on the cross, where was Peter? He had fled, so he actually didn't see Christ suffer on the cross, so... Is he mentioning that? It might be surprising that he is. I think a better way to read this is this, is to distribute the fellow, the prefixed fellow. So, I exhort the elders among you as fellow elder and fellow witness of the sufferings of Christ. That is to say, what do elders do? Elders, along with people like Peter, who was an apostle and an elder, what do we do? What's our testimony? What is our testimony? What is our witness? Our job is to be witnesses, testimony to the sufferings of Christ. And what do we do? We pastor people by ministering the sufferings of Christ, by preaching that. We guard the church, we oversee the church, but the focus is on the ministry of the sufferings, the death of Jesus Christ. Now, he says that we who are pastors, elders, bishops, all the same office, we're to shepherd the flock of God, verse 2, that is among you, exercising oversight. And here it says, there are three contrasts here. It, saw, it says how we shouldn't do it, and how we should do it. How we shouldn't do it, how we should do it. It says, not this way, but this way. Not this way, but this way. Three times. Look at verse, uh, verse 2. Shepherd the flock among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. Willingly. Not begrudgingly, not do I have to do this, but do this willingly, as God would have you, it says. And then, what's the second one? Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Similar to willingly, but eagerly. Not focused on whether there's money involved in this or not. And certainly not not dirty money, not shameful money, not not money that is acquired in a way that is not honorable. And then, three, verse 3, it says not domineering over those who are in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Not domineering. So, not begrudgingly or under compulsion, not looking for shameful gain, and not domineering, but rather willingly, eagerly, and being examples to the flock. That's how elders should live. That's how elders should minister. And then it says in verse 4, and when the chief shepherd, referring to whom? Jesus. The chief shepherd appears. You will receive the unfading crown of glory. So the reward of elders is not necessarily great in this life, but it is certainly great in the life to come because they, we, I should say, get to be under shepherds, sub-shepherds, under the great shepherd, the chief shepherd. Now, this is what, up to this point, I guess... You can just be listening in because I'm talking to elders and I'm the only elder uh, appointed in this church so far. So, so far, this sermon is for me. And uh, But what this means is, you should know about this is because this is what you should require of me. You, you can You can bring this to me and say, Larry, this is what you should be, this is what you should be doing. This is what an elder is and this is what an elder does. So, you have every right to require this of me and in the future... When other elders are added to our number, uh, when you choose your elders, which is how we do it in the Presbyterian Church, whom should you look for? You should look for people like this. These are the kind of people that you will choose as elders. So it's important that you understand what elders are. And by the way, we're working on forming a church membership. And you might say, why are we doing that? There are a number of reasons for doing that. And if you're in the class, you see why we're doing that. But there's some practical reasons I need to know for whom I'm responsible. Uh, it says uh, in Hebrews that the leaders of the church will give an account to God for those under our care. And I need to know who those are. Is it all the Christians in Broward County? For whom am I responsible? If so, I'm, I'm quitting right now because I can't, give, I can't give an account for all of those. Is it everybody who comes and visits here at some point or another? Am I responsible for them? Will I have to give an account to to God for them? Well, I need to know, and that's the membership is important for me because the membership, I will know that these are the ones for whom I'm responsible to pastor, to shepherd, to oversee, and these are the ones for whom I must give an account to God. But it's also, membership is important because I said the members will choose the elders. Who will choose? Those who happen to show up that day? No, it's those who have said, this is our church. And these are our elders, and we are uh, under these elders, and they are pastoring and shepherding us. Now, that's the first. Uh, cared for by the elders. And then in verse 5, it says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now, um, why does it mention the younger? Because actually, everybody should be subject to the elders, right? Uh, everybody in the church, not just the people who happen to be younger than they are. Uh, it could be mentioning the younger people could be, because younger people do have a tendency to be a bit resistant to authority. Those of us who were young, remember that. Those of us who are young, maybe can identify that. It may be that. But I think also, uh, it, it is probably more likely that the elders tended to be elder. They, if they were going to have this position, they tended to be men of greater maturity. Now, oftentimes in our system, we, put, we make young men elders. I was ordained as a teaching elder in the Presbyterian Church in America when I was 26. I mean, what were they thinking? Um, I was able to get through the tests, but really to apply <laughs> elder to me at that time was perhaps a bit, uh, a bit premature. Uh, it probably fits me better now than it did then. But it's, it's saying uh, everyone, be subject to the elders and particularly particularly those who are younger need not to not to be rebellious against the authority that God has put over. And then it says not only elders not only the younger but everyone. Look at verse 5. Everyone. Likewise you who are younger be subject to the elders. Then it says clothe yourselves who? All of you. Does that include the elders? Yes. Does that include the younger? Does that include the older? It includes everybody, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. And then he says the reason why, for God opposes the proud, but give grace to the humble. Uh, do you want God to be opposed to you? Then be arrogant, lift yourself up. Do you want God to pour more grace upon you? Then humble yourselves before one another. Now, what is Humility. Oftentimes we think of this sort of thing as kind of a self-image sort of thing since the 70s and the the pop psychology of the 70s. How do we think about ourselves? But the idea of humility is not so much how we think about ourselves, it's about how we we think about others. And we think about them as more important than ourselves. Uh, Paul has a wonderful definition of humility and a very practical one. If you look back at Philippians, I'll read it for you. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, it says, "...do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility..." Count others, consider others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Very practical. So it's not really thinking about how you think about yourself. It's how you think about others. It's not so much what you think about your own interests. It's saying, what are others' interests? So this is very practical. Do any of us need to be instructed to put ourselves first? Pretty natural thing to do, isn't it? That's really easy. Does anybody need to be instructed to think of ourselves as superior to others? No, that, that comes very naturally to us. And so this cuts against the grain, but it says, count yourselves, consider yourself. This is an exercise to consider others that have a priority over you, uh, that their interests uh, go before yours. That's humility. And that's what we're being called to do, not just, uh, not just the elders, not just the younger, but all of us. Now, um, he goes on to say in verse 6, Humble yourselves or be humbled, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Now, when we're being arrogant and proud, what are we doing? We're exalting ourselves. We're lifting ourselves up. And he says, you want to be lifted up? That's fine. That's great. But don't do it to yourself. Let somebody else do it. And let that someone be god Himself. You want to be exalted? Fine. This is how you do it. Clothe yourselves with humility to one another. Look out for other people's interests before your own. And then under God's mighty hand, be humbled. And I think what he's pointing out there is that as God brings things into our lives through His mighty hand, that we are to be humbled under those things in our lives, whatever they might be, good or bad or difficult, that we do submit to God's mighty hand so that He might, if he, has, if he has cast us down through His providence now, if He has put us in a, a difficult place now, that, that in the future, that He would exalt us in His time, not in our time. So, we are cared for by elders. We're cared for by each other, as we, as we put each other's interests before our own. And, best of all, we're cared for by God. Look at verse 6 and then 7. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you. And then verse 7 shows us how to, how to humble ourselves before God. Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. So we are a triply cared for people. God has provided elders to care for us. God has provided each other to care for us. And He says to humble yourselves under God's mighty hand, cast all your cares upon Him. Why? Because He cares for you. Do you know the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus? All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege it is to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pains we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful? Who will all our troubles share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden? Cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do thy friends despise, forsake thee? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In His arms He'll take and shield thee. Thou wilt find a solace there. Cast all your cares upon Him. Why? Because He cares for you, take it to the Lord in prayer. Don't, don't try to bear it by yourself. Share it with your brothers and sisters. Yes, they care for you. Share it with your elders. Yes, they care for you. But take it to the Lord in prayer because He cares for you. And then, changing gears somewhat, He gives us instruction about how to live in this life as we cast our cares upon God, as we're cared for by others, our elders, then he says, but be careful, be vigilant, be aware, be alert as you walk in this life because there is an enemy. He says in verse 8, be sober. It's the third time he's told us to be sober. It's translated here sober minded. And of course it, of course it rules out abuse of alcohol that will make us uh, drunk and in a tuper. But uh, sober minded is a good translation. The idea is that, that we're clear minded, that we're alert. That we have our, our senses about us, our wits about us, sharp, clear minds. And then he says to be watchful. To be watchful. Be sober-minded and watchful. It's interesting that Peter would use that word because Jesus, when He went to the Garden of Gethsemane, He told His disciples to wait and what? To watch. And what do they do? They fell asleep. They fell asleep. And Peter learned his lesson, didn't he? He said, be sober, be clear-minded. And be watchful. He remembers what happens when you're not watchful. He said, be watchful. And he said, be watchful because you're adversary. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now That's frightening, but he says in verse 9, the encouraging thing is resist him. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. We can't resist him. He's greater than we are, But greater is the one who's in us than he who is in the world. And we can resist Him. We can resist Him by being sober, watchful, and firm in our faith. And we can remain firm in our faith when we recognize that what we have to suffer in this life is just for a little while. Look at verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself... Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And then verse 11, "...to Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen." So who has the dominion? The devil who's seeking or whom he may devour, who's prowling around? No, he doesn't have the dominion. God is the one who has the dominion. And He, at His time, will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. And what should we do in the meantime? Be clear-minded, be alert, be watchful, be firm in the face, faith, faith, casting all our cares upon Him. Now there are some concluding remarks. And they're interesting remarks as always. And sometimes we pass over these, but here Peter says, By Silvanus, verse 12, By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. Who's Silvanus? It's the same one called Silas. And Silas was a leader in the early church. He was a traveling companion of Paul. And now we find He was also a traveling companion of Peter. And somehow, he participated in the letter. He could have been the secretary, as Peter dictated. He could have been the the delivery man who took it to the churches. But somehow, Peter sent the letter through Salvanus or Silas. And then he mentions in verse 13, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen. Who is this one, this woman, who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen? Well, Babylon was the city of Babylon had been destroyed. And it really was just a rubble at this point, a little village at this point. Peter was not in the city of Babylon. He's, he's using symbolic language here. And this symbolic language ties in with the opening verses of 1 Peter. Go back to 1 Peter. And the first thing we realized about ourselves uh, in 1 Peter is that we're an exiled people. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And then he closes off by saying that she who is in Babylon, the capital of the exile, that's where the people of God were exiled to Babylon, and from there they were dispersed. And he's saying, she who is in Babylon, who is this lady? It is the church. The church that is in Babylon, the church that is in exile, the church that is in the capital of the the exiled community also greets you. Maybe, may well have been referring to Rome. Later we find that, um, that in Revelation... Uh, this uh, this code word is used for Rome. It's Babylon. Uh, it may that be that Peter is writing from Rome. Probably was. But here he's emphasizing that he's writing to an exiled people and he's writing as part of the exiled people. And then he also mentions, as does Mark, my son. Well, who's Mark? Well, the best we can figure out, it's the Mark. It's uh, It's the one who... Whose mom had a house that had, that, that church met in, in in Jerusalem. It's Mark that then went on one of the early journeys with Paul, but then he turned back, and then Paul wouldn't let him go anymore. So he went with his cousin Barnabas, and then it's this same Mark whom later, when Paul was getting to the end of his life, said, "Please send Mark." Uh, so Mark was restored to Paul, and it's probably that same Mark to whom the third or the second Gospel is attributed, the Gospel of Mark. And here we find this Mark was also with Peter in Babylon, in exile. And then he says, Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Now, he mentions these details, but I want you to see something else he does with this conclusion. He mentions Salvanus, he mentions the church, he mentions Mark. But look at at what he says, By Salvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true what? grace of God, stand firm in it. Do you know what the, the, the letter, this first letter of Peter is about? This is it. He's writing he's, the conclusion here. He's saying, this is what this whole letter is about. This, what I have written to you, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. If somebody asks you, what did you do today? Oh, we finished up First Peter. What's it about? What's it about? Stand firm in the grace of God. That's what this letter is about. And then... He says in verse 14, Greet one another with the kiss of love. He's saying greet one another affectionately. And they did it in those days by by kissing. And he says the kiss of love. And then the last line, what's it say? Peace to all of you who are in Christ Jesus. Go back to the very first verse of this letter. It's actually the second. But he says, Peter, verse verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. How did he start the letter? Wishing us grace and peace. How does he end the letter? referring to grace, this is the true grace of of God, stand in it, and saying, peace to all of you who are in Christ. But we have something else thrown in. The kiss of love. So he starts with grace and peace, and he adds grace, peace, and love. And here we have a summary. We have a summary of the Christian faith, we have a summary of the Christian hope, and we have a summary of Christian living. Uh, We have a summary of, of Christian faith. It's all about grace. What's grace? It's free favor. Favor from God, not based on what we've done, but based on what Christ has done for us. Free favor, that's what the Christian life is all about. Stand firm in that free favor, and you will do well. It's about Christian experience. What is our Christian experience? If we have God's favor, we have peace with God, and we also have peace with one another. And we can live in that shalom, that, that well-being together. And then it's also about Christian living. What's one way to sum up Christian living? It's love. It's love for God and love for one another. What have we learned in these weeks together? We've learned about the true grace of God. Let's stand in it. We've learned about peace with God and peace with one another. Let's continue to walk in that shalom, that peace. And we've learned about love. Love for God and love for one another. So let's keep on loving God and loving one another. If we do those things, then we have heard and taken into account this letter that Peter has sent to these exiles long ago and to these exiles these days. Grace, peace, and love. Let's pray. Our God, this is the true grace of God. Jesus Christ, in Him, forgiveness of all our sins, righteousness before You, all freely given to us because of Your love. This is the peace we have with You and peace we can have with one another. Oh God, I pray always that we would enjoy our peace with You and that we would practice peace with one another. And this is the love that You have poured out upon us in Christ, that we might love You because You first loved us and that we might live in love for one another, love for our neighbor, and even love for our enemies if they come against us. And so we might do what Peter's calling us to do, live such honorable lives as we're exiles in this world, that others may see us and glorify You through the grace, the peace, and the love that they see that You have worked and are working in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.